0: It's Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, Canada's China strategy.
1: Today's China is not uh, the China of the past.
0: China calls Canada condescending and blames this country for tense relations. Will the government try to repair the relationship at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in Thailand? We'll get the latest from Bangkok and then bring in the MPs to break it all down. Then... More mask suggestions, but not mandates. Bills and drug shortages. More provinces are only encouraging masking. How will Canada make it through cold and flu season? We'll ask BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. And bracing for classroom closures. They have a role to play to stay at the table and not walk out on kids. So I think, uh, I think a lot of us are rather disappointed the children will be the casualty again of the union. Ontario students might have to stay home Monday if the province and education workers can't reach a deal. Our press gallery hits the books on the scholastic shutdown. This is Power Play. Now let's get to the players.
2: Over the past seven years, I have seen our prime minister stand up in many different fora with many different leaders for the Canadian national interest. Sometimes that means you have to have hard conversations. The Prime Minister is always prepared to do that.
0: And that was Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christian Freeland just before a question period today defending her boss's stance against China. The diplomatic dispute seen around the world has taken another turn. Now China is accusing our country of acting in a, quote, condescending manner. It comes after that testy exchange caught on camera between President Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Trudeau likely wants to put this story behind him and focus on trade at the APEC summit. But the issue continues to dog the Canadian delegation. For more, we're joined by CTV's parliamentary correspondent, Annie Bergeron oliver She is following the prime minister on this 10-day, four-country trip. Annie?
3: Mike, the Prime Minister is here in Bangkok, Thailand to try to focus on the economy, trade and business diversification here in the Indo-Pacific region. It's really about face time, bilateral meetings with potential business partners here in this region at the APEC summit. But right now, China seems to be overshadowing that. And in fact, Mike, China is actually here in Bangkok for the APEC summit. So Trudeau can't get away from Xi that easily and Xi can't get away from Trudeau. Now the reason that we're talking about this again today is because of that viral video that we captured yesterday. Our pool camera got that very rare unscripted moment with Xi Jinping where he confronted the Prime Minister at the end of the G20 summit yesterday. He was telling him that he didn't like the way that information was quote unquote leaked from a meeting that the two of them had on the sidelines of the G20 the day before. Today, China's foreign ministry came out with a statement. They blamed Canada for what they called bad relationships over the years. They asked Canada to come up with concrete steps and actions to try to improve this relationship. They also said that there was no threat in that conversation, no intimidation, that it was just two leaders trying to share their different realities. So it's interesting that China is coming out with this kind of a statement today. Clearly, they don't like the way that the conversation is being portrayed, and they're trying to sort of change the narrative. Um, What's also interesting is they talk about election interference. We know, Mike, that that's one of the things that the Prime Minister talked about in his initial conversation with Xi Jinping earlier in the week at the G20. And in this statement from uh, China's foreign ministry. They talk about the fact that China does not interfere in the affairs of other governments, um, but that is not what a lot of allegations are right now. There are allegations out there that China interfered in the 2019 election, and there are allegations that they created pop-up police stations in Canada as well. So a lot of experts think that it's that area of Chinese interference in Canadian domestic affairs that really has China upset. Now, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here because, again, China is here and so is Canada. But unlike at the G20, they're not going to be sitting side by side. Trudeau has an ally in Chile that's going to be sitting between them because they are seated by the alphabet. Mike?
0: CTV's Annie Bergeron, Oliver in Bangkok. Thanks for this, Annie. So you've just heard that message from China's foreign ministry spokesperson following that tense exchange between the two leaders. And as Annie explained, the Chinese believe it's up to Canada to repair relations between the two countries. But with both President Xi and Prime Minister Trudeau in Bangkok for the APEC summit, will there be another opportunity to smooth things over, or does Canada even have to make the first move? Let's talk about that with our MPs. Joining me is Liberal, Affair- Liberal Foreign Affairs Parliamentary Secretary Rob Oliphant. We have conservative uh, foreign affairs critic Michael Chong coming into the building, but right now we've got NDP, Deputy International Trade Critic Daniel Blakey. Thank you both for being here right now. Mr. Olyphant, let's start with you. That 10-minute exchange at the beginning of the G20 summit certainly has been leading to a different characterization in the Chinese media and by the Chinese foreign uh, spokesperson. What do you make of President Xi's decision to confront Prime Minister Trudeau at the beginning there?
4: I don't think I'll comment on uh, President Xi's activities. What I do know is that the Prime Minister of Canada Uh, took the time and the opportunity to stand up for Canadians and Canadians' rights. Um, He uh, talks about values when he travels. He's an experienced G7 leader, uh, maybe the longest-serving G7 leader, I believe. And he is uh, experienced in these situations where he went to uh, this particular meeting uh, and wanted to confront, obviously, uh, concerns that Canadians have about inappropriate Chinese interference in activities in this country. Um, That is his job. That is uh, what Canadians expect him to do and uh, he can do that. Even as we say that Canada and China have an important strategic relationship. Obviously there are economic uh, interests that are always at play in that relationship and Canada continues to, to find ways to operate with eyes wide open um, any, anything that we are doing uh, with China.
0: But how does that relationship now move forward if China is accusing Canada of acting in a condescending manner? These are strong words.
4: There' are strong words, but i don't think we jumped to any conclusions i mean every every leader has their own domestic uh uh, challenges to, uh, to, uh, to assert. Uh, what we do is we continue to talk about Canada's relationship in the Indo-Pacific, uh, where we are developing strong partnerships. We came out of the ASEAN meeting as a strategic partner. That's been a, a goal. I've been working on that for three years, mm-hmm. and this minister's been working on it. We are now elevated to the highest level of, of engagement in the ASEAN countries. We continue to speak about human rights. We continue to speak about progressive uh, trade agreements. We continue to speak about uh, the ways that Canadian businesses can do um, a good business. But at the same time, we are mindful of Canadian values, Canadian uh, stances on human rights. And we'll continue to say them. And uh, there's no apologies about that.
0: Mr. Blakey, I wanted to ask you, is this one of those moments where you put partisan politics aside and you actually have to tip your cap to the prime minister for standing up to China like this?
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anybody in Canada who hasn't sometimes felt that the Prime Minister can have an irritatingly condescending tone. But I don't think that's the issue here. It's not about the Prime Minister or his demeanor. It's about the issues between Canada and China. But in in this this case,
0: case, does it look, in your mind, I mean, regardless what you think of where Mr. Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has been elsewhere and how he's spoken to people elsewhere, in this case standing up to China like this. Do you well, as the I say, difference? I don't
5: I don't think it's about the particular demeanor of the Prime Minister. I think it's about the issues. And I think it's important that Canada continue to push back against China on certain key issues. And I don't think it's reasonable to expect that the Chinese are going to like that, mm-hmm. particularly not coming from a country who's had liberal and conservative governments for the last 20 or 30 years that have been really trying to cozy up to China and had very nice things usually to say about China. The Harper government signed a secret trade deal with China in order to try to attract more Chinese investment. The Creche government often went to China in order to encourage more uh, investment. And in the early days of this government, we saw a lot of close relationships with uh, the uh, Chinese. And of course, that soured when Canada was put in a difficult position by the US over over the extradition Mm -hmm. of of, of a Huawei executive. I think we're continuing to see some fallout of that. Uh, And I think, you know, if the Chinese want to be a world superpower, I don't think it's any question that that has been their ambition. They need a thicker skin uh, on whether they like the tone of this Prime Minister or that Prime Minister. What we need to be talking about are the issues. And the Chinese should expect that Canadian leadership are going to bring difficult issues into conversations with them, I think we actually need more of that and we need to back it up economically by reshoring some manufacturing right. work and being less economically dependent on China. So
0: in essence, home. is this the perfect time to pivot away from China now that we're seeing the relations at the point that they are, Mr. Blakey?
5: I think Canada does need to be looking for other trade partners and to be doing more work at home. And that's something New Democrats have been saying for a long time, actually, because we've been worried about the kind of vulnerability that you have when a lot of your manufacturing leaves the country and goes somewhere else. That makes you very independent on those other places. And I think China is acting you know, with an attitude uh, that suggests it's aware of its economic power with respect mm-hmm. to Canada, and it expects a certain kind of deference that I don't think is appropriate for Canada to offer. We need to continue to push back against China and, and present strong messages on, on issues of human rights and, and, other, and other important issues. The issue yeah. of potential election interference here in Canada is a very grave issue, and that is certainly something that Canadian leadership should be speaking strongly to China about whether the president there likes it or not.
0: So, Mr. Oliphant, then, is it up to Canada to make the first move, as China seems
4: to be saying here? I think Canada and China have a difficult relationship uh, right now. Um, but it goes without saying that we can't ignore China. China is a major economic force in our world. And so what we have to do is enter into all our relationships with China Economic relationships, other relationships, find out places where we will need to challenge them on areas where we profoundly disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, we will compete with them, but we want a level playing field. And we will cooperate with them on issues like climate change. We have to do that. Yeah. That is one of those things. That I hate we to need cut to you do. off,
0: but we now finally have Mr. Chong in uh, the, the seat here. We appreciate uh, you being here. I wanted to ask you, in terms of what we're seeing now with the relation between Canada and China, is it up to Canada now to sort of reach out and try and make amends or repair this relationship? Or are you happy with the way Canada now is maybe presented with an opportunity to pivot away from China?
6: Absolutely not. It's not up to us to make amends in the relationship. It's up to the government of Canada to take a strong position uh, to confront the threats, the very real threats, that China is posing to this country and its citizens. Just in recent weeks, we've had uh, reports about illegal police stations from from the PRC operating in Canada. We've had allegations that... More than at least 11 candidates in the 2019 received illicit funds funneled through Beijing's consulate in Toronto. Um, and we all know that in the last federal election, there was disinformation spread by proxies acting on behalf of Beijing uh, on Chinese-language social media platforms in this country. So we have to confront these threats um, and to make it clear to China that we won't tolerate this kind of interference on our own soil.
0: And I wanted to follow up with you on this as well. The question of uh, what Canada needs to do now, because when you consider the fact that we do have, um, uh, you know, possible concern out there at the time, um, you know, it it was not too long ago when Canada, not to say that Canada was being a a little skittish about it, but certainly when, you know, we had two Michaels that were um, arbitrarily detained in China, um, there was maybe a little more care put into it, and careful language used with China. Do you think, Mr. Chong, at this point, that Canada needs to be careful of that, considering what China is capable of? Do we need to now sort of navigate this a little more gingerly going forward?
6: Uh, Not at all. I think, in fact, an authoritarian regime like China understands one thing, and that is clear, consistent positions from the government of Canada. I think when we're vague, when we're prevaricating... Uh, on our position on China, I think uh, the leadership in Beijing takes advantage of that prevarication, of that uh, of that hesitancy, and I think that's what we saw take place in Bali. Um, when China is confronted with strong, clear positions on part of other governments, it tends to respect those positions and act accordingly. Uh, but when governments are uncertain of themselves, unsure about what their positions are on a range of issues, Beijing has shown itself to take advantage of that. Uh, to divide
0: people, and to, to exploit it for its own purposes. Appreciate it, Mr. Chong, Mr. Blakey, Mr. Oliphant. I'm sure we will have a lot more time to discuss this because I'm sure it is not over yet. Uh, turning to other news now, the RCMP in Montreal have charged a Quebec man with three terrorism-related counts for attempting to overthrow the government of Haiti. For more on this, let's bring in CTV Montreal Bureau Chief Geneviève Beauchemin. Thanks for being here, Jen. I wanted to ask you, what are the police alleging here?
1: Well, Mike, the RCMP said today, and I quote what he said, he said, there's no other way to say this. He said, this man wanted to do an armed revolution in Haiti, overthrow the president. Jovenel Moïse, and also seized power for himself, he says. So really a strong allegations here. And what they're saying happened is that uh, Gérald Nicolas, 51-year-old man from Lévis, just outside of Quebec City there, that he would have traveled to several countries, Haiti and uh, Central America, South America, and that he would have been raising funds and also looking for arms in order to carry out this overthrow this revolution and that he was operating he was back and forth between his home here in levy now those are strong allegations he's facing three charges those charges include leaving Canada to facilitate terrorist activity, facilitating terrorist activity, providing property for terrorist purposes. And, you know, he could be convicted to, for, to, to could face 14 years in jail if indeed he is convicted. But we did speak to his lawyer who says that um, he intends to plead not guilty. And he completely, completely says that these allegations are not true.
0: Genevieve, police say that their investigation began in July of last year. That was the same month that President Jovenel Moise was assassinated. But police are saying the charges are unrelated to his death. Can you explain that?
1: They are. What they're saying, indeed, is that there was a lot of political unrest at the time. Of course, we know this in Haiti. At that particular moment, there were different factions and still are, of course, today, um, wrestling for control of the country. And indeed, when they started their investigation, there was that political context, and it was right around that time. And it has been a long investigation. They say that they conducted a search of Monsieur Nicolas' home near Quebec City back in November 2021, but that they had to continue their investigation throughout that year to figure out exactly uh, what was happening. They say it's more complex when you're dealing with these kinds of international investigations. And at the end of that, they have now laid those charges. But they say that what their investigation has not shown any link with the actual assassination of Jovenel Moïse, that though there was this plot that was being carried out, it was not connected to the assassination that occurred on that July day.
0: CTV Montreal's Bureau Chief Geneviève Beauchemin. Thanks so much for this, Jen. Coming up, mask measures. As provinces deal with a triple threat of respiratory viruses, health officials resist bringing back mask mandates. What will it take to make that step? And how is B.C. dealing with a shortage of children's drugs? We'll ask that province's health minister next on Power Play. Quebec and British Columbia have joined Ontario in strongly recommending mask wearing in public. Again, this is a recommendation and not a return of mask mandates. It comes as hospitals across Canada are feeling intense pressure from the triple threat of respiratory viruses that are COVID-19, influenza and RSV. Adding to this crisis, Canada is facing a drug shortage, which extends beyond the already severe shortage of children's pain and fever medication. But a House of Commons health committee on Tuesday, and a Health Canada official told MPs that up to 800 drugs are in short supply in this country. Among those, 22 are considered a critical shortage. So how are provinces handling the multi-health crisis? Let's find out. Joining me now is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Welcome to CTV's Power Play, Minister. We appreciate you being here. Hospitals continue to feel the weight of that triple threat of viruses, RSV, influenza, and COVID-19. I know your province's top doctor says that a mask mandate would be heavy-handed, but considering the wave of sicknesses that could be coming, why wouldn't we mandate masks at this point?
2: Well, first of all... um in British Columbia, we do mandate masks in healthcare facilities, uh, acute care facilities, hospitals, and long term care. And uh, we have a specific mandate that goes across the healthcare system, which is, I think, unique or almost unique in Canada. In addition, of course, we're the only province in those settings to mandate vaccinations for healthcare workers. So we do have strong actions in place, especially to protect those most vulnerable, those in those settings and uh, of course, our healthcare workers. With respect to masks, we encourage and have guidance like every other province in the country that uh, people should wear them under certain conditions. In particular, if you're feeling at all sick, and this can be the common cold because it's sometimes very difficult to distinguish between the common cold in some stages and influenza and uh, COVID-19. And so we have guidance to use uh, masks in many settings. We have passed legislation to, at the provincial level to have sick days to help people because we know that when you're sick, you need to stay home. You need to wash your hands. These are the what we call the layers of protection. But the most important thing, Mike, in every province is to get vaccinated. We have a prevention against the rise of influenza, which is the thing rising in British Columbia the most right now. It's different in other provinces. There's a prevention and that's getting your flu shot. And for children, that can be a flu spray, which is even easier for them to manage. Right now in BC, we're having record numbers of people getting their flu shots. It's more than 1.2 million. That's twice as many as did it at this time last year. However, uh, it's about 12 percent, for example, of children have got their flu shot. That's one in eight, and we need that to be
0: higher. So what do you do to get that higher? I mean, because historically, um, you know, flu shots have been, you know, that uptake on that has been low. Uh, And so if you're at the point right now where you're saying that people in public settings don't need masks, yet people are not getting their flu shots or maybe the uptake on COVID-19 shots is low as well. I mean, are you at the point where you're just relying on the goodwill of people?
2: No, what we're saying is get your flu shot get your COVID-19 vaccine. But they're not, Minister. With all due we, respect, well, they're not well, going well, out well, and doing that. Well, with all due respect, we are, we're going to set a new record for flu shots this year. What I'm saying is that they're preventative and it's especially important for those most vulnerable to influenza, right? Those who are older and those who are children. So it's important to emphasize that, that that is a prevention that doesn't just help you, your family and your community, but helps the healthcare system. So one point two more than one point two million as of yesterday in B.C. have got their flu shot. I'm saying to you last year at this time, that was six hundred thousand. But we need that to be higher. We are offering flu shots at uh, at uh, more than twelve hundred locations in British Columbia. I know other provinces are doing the same and we need to get them equally with respect to COVID-19. We need people to get their bivalent boosters. We know And in the presentation by Dr. Henry yesterday, that you're four times as vulnerable to being hospitalized, four times likely to die, four times likely to be in critical care if you're unvaccinated against having your booster dose. And so we need to encourage people to do both. And these are the largest immunization campaigns in the history of Canada in every province, in in every province, wherever you are, not just B.C., get your flu shot, get your COVID-19 bivalent vaccine and book it today.
0: Minister, that's all great advice, and I think everybody should take it, frankly. I wanted to ask you uh, about your province, but many others are experiencing this children's drug shortage. The Public Health Agency of Canada has secured a foreign supply of children's acetaminophen. But how close is your province to being at the breaking point when it comes to not having these types of drugs for children?
2: I think other provinces are in slightly worse uh, condition, but we're having real challenges, even in U.S. border towns. Interesting, there are real challenges. You know, there's a lot of federal-provincial discussion right now, and some of it has been quite negative, but I want to hear... Uh, praise my colleague, Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, who's worked very closely with us on this issue, for going and getting those medications for children. That will help us, for example, in emergency rooms because there's a lot of anxiety amongst parents and amongst children about the, the inability of drugs such as children's Tylenol, for example. So uh, that's something that we've worked on together, and I give uh, full marks to uh, Jean-Yves Duclos and the federal government for that.
0: PC Health Minister Adrian Dix, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate this.
2: Great to be on Power Play.
0: Thanks again. Thank you. Now here are some other news you need to know. Ukraine's energy infrastructure was battered by more Russian missile strikes today. It comes as temperatures in Ukraine begin to drop and winter starts to set in. Air raid sirens sounded over Kyiv today with a fresh blanket of snow on the ground. Ukrainian authorities are still working to restore power in areas across the country after a massive Russian bombardment earlier this week. Attacks on Ukraine's energy sector are seen as a central part of Russia's war strategy aimed at depriving Ukrainians of water, heat and power as the cold weather arrives. And a blast from the past today at Rideau Hall, at the Order of Canada ceremony in Ottawa. Don't adjust your sets. That is former Governor General Michael Jean, who stepped in today for current Governor General Mary Simon, who wasn't feeling well. Among the Canadians honoured today, CTV Beverly Thompson. Thompson received the honour for her outstanding contributions to broadcasting, volunteer work, and support for healthcare organizations. Congratulations to her. And all other recipients. Still to come, an attempt to improve supply chain delays and prevent passenger delays at airports this holiday season. The government says it's ready to tackle both of those issues. So, what's the plan to make sure both goods and people continue to flow freely over the border? Last we'll Transport Minister Omar Al Ghabra, when PowerPlay returns. Can a new bill strengthen Canada's supply chains? Transport Minister Omar al says the legislation he tabled today will try to alleviate the cost of living pressures Canadians are feeling right across the country. Now, links in the supply chain have been threatened by the extreme climate events and, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So what will this bill do to help? Well, the Strengthening the Port System and Railway Safety in Canada Act is trying to remove transport barriers, modernize the port system, and improve security with Canada's rails. Now, with those changes, will they be felt by Canadians who are dealing with inflation right now? And with holiday travel on the horizon, what is the government doing to avoid a repeat of airport delays that we saw all through the summer? Let's find out. And joining me right now is Transport Minister Omar al Welcome, Minister. I appreciate you making the time for us today. And I want to ask you about this bill. It's aimed at strengthening the port system and railway safety here in Canada. You say it will also help strengthen Canada's supply chains and will help with inflation. What concretely will this do to tackle inflation?
7: Uh, Mike, it's great to be with you on your show. Uh, look, um, Canadians um, and citizens around the world are experiencing higher prices today. And we know that the root cause of these higher prices are mostly economic and supply chain disruptions. We are still coming out of the COVID public health measures and there is an ongoing imbalance and inefficiencies in the the economy, a global economy and domestic economy. So this bill aims to increase and uh, encourage more efficiency Uh, More new tools, uh, more digitization, more information sharing that will enhance efficiency and therefore reduce the pressure uh, that is causing rising prices and also, by the way, causing lack of availability. So the increased efficiency that we're going to implement in the system is going to help address some of the root causes of supply chains that we're seeing today in our economy.
0: Now I know you have been warning Canadians when you introduced this that it's not going to make a difference overnight. So, how long will it realistically take for us to see results to those improvement to those uh, supply chains?
7: Mike, it's really important that that your viewers know that the government is doing immediate action as we speak. There are a lot of um, steps that are being taken to improve efficiency as we speak. Those efficiencies are done on an operational basis, they are done on a day to day basis. This bill aims to address some of the systemic and structural inefficiencies or opportunities to enhance efficiencies that exist within the system. To, uh, to answer your question, Look, we need to pass it first in the House of Commons. So I'm looking forward to working with my colleagues from other parties on passing this bill. Um, I'm hoping to pass it as soon as possible. And once we pass it, we're going to start working on implementing the regulations that this bill uh, implements. And we are going to see structural improvements in the system that will lead to better efficiencies, lower prices for Canadians and Canadian businesses.
0: There was already this supply chain task force that released the final report though last month where recommendations to improve Canada's supply chains and it calls for things like establishing a supply chain office, immediately addressing the transportation supply chain labour shortage and develop long-term supply chain strategies. So does the government accept all the recommendations from that report? Uh,
7: yes, Mike. Uh, I want to thank members of the task force for the work that they've done. They've put together a comprehensive report that included very good recommendations and we are working on implementing those recommendations um um this uh, by the way part of the recommendation is addressing congestion at ports and this bill helps do that so uh it, there's really an ongoing work that is taking place today to implement uh these recommendations and i look forward as i said to working with my colleagues on passing this bill
0: just to shift gears for a second, though, as Minister of Transport, this is your responsibility and your, pur- and your purview as well. Uh, you had been asked earlier about masks on planes and trains, and you had said that you actually wear a mask when you travel on a plane. But with public health officials recommending people wear masks indoors again, what is the threshold that we have to cross for your government to bring back a mask mandate on planes and trains in this country?
7: Uh- First of all, Mike, uh, these measures that were implemented in the past were extraordinary. Um, I never took joy in implementing these measures, but I felt they were necessary. Our government felt they were necessary to protect the health and safety of Canadians. And I hope we never have to go back to those days. Having said all of that, I, you know, we make no apologies for doing what we believe is the right thing. For now, the advice is to strongly recommend individuals to wear masks because we think we're in a phase where we need to depend on people's individual responsibility so we continue to encourage people to take personal responsibility to wear masks uh, and uh, and follow the advice that we get from our doctors so let me repeat i hope we never find ourselves get there but if the doctor's advice god forbid changes then we're going to have to see what we can do but for now i really hope we never have to go back there
0: Lastly, I just wanted to ask you, Canadians are preparing to travel again for that busy holiday season. Unions representing the air traffic controllers and airline pilots are warning of staff shortages that will have serious impacts. So what is your government doing to ensure that the months ahead, uh, the months ahead will not be like this past summer where we had massive delays at airports?
7: Mike, uh, I, you know, I still remember uh, those summer months. Um, those delays, cancellations were really unacceptable and uh, we worked very hard with airports and airlines to address them. I'm pleased to say that currently operations at airports and airlines are back to pre-pandemic uh, uh, performance level. Having said that, there are many lessons that we learned from this last summer and uh, I am hosting a summit next Thursday Uh, to discuss uh, these lessons with airlines, airports and other stakeholders uh, and to ensure that everyone is prepared for the Christmas rush. We cannot go back to what we saw last summer and we're making sure that we do everything we can to, uh, to be prepared for that busy Christmas season.
0: So what does that mean, be prepared for? Does that mean staffing levels, making sure that the airlines will guarantee that things will go well?
7: Well, yes, we're making sure that the airlines and airports have the staffing level they need. We're making sure that the systemic issues that need to be addressed, including at CATSA and NAV Canada and airports are are prepared, all of the above. We need to make sure that we have the proper forecasts for what we expect the volumes to be, Um, all uh, information sharing across uh, various organizations within the sector. All of that needs to happen. And again, the summit next Thursday will help us put together um, new tools and new ideas to make sure that we do these systemic issues properly and make sure that we never go back to those days again.
0: And we hope that we don't go back to those days. and We hope that you will come back after that summit. Transportation Minister Omar Gabra, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Mike. Still to come, the Prime Minister's national security advisor on the convoy threat. Exactly what advice was Justin Trudeau getting when he pulled the trigger on the Emergencies Act in February? We head to the inquiry in Ottawa next. Power Play returns right after this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's National Security and Intelligence Advisor testified today at the inquiry examining the use of the Emergencies Act. Jody Thomas shed light on the information received when the government made the historic decision to trigger the Emergencies Act.
1: There seemed to be uh, quite a bit of activity between OPS and RCMP to understand the magnitude of this. Um, At the same time, after the first weekend, we saw behavior on the streets that indicated they were settling in for quite some time. You know, wheels were removed from rigs so that they couldn't be towed. Um, Supply lines were being set up. And so something quite different was happening and unfolding in front of our eyes.
0: Another key piece of the puzzle, let's break it all down with our CTV News senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor. He's live at the inquiry. Glenn, thanks for joining us. The inquiry here is from the prime minister's national security and intelligence advisor. In your mind, what stood out from Jody Thomas's testimony? Yeah, this
8: is as important a person as the inquiry could possibly hear from, because she is the one who is giving advice to the prime minister who must ultimately make the decision about whether or not he's going to invoke the Emergencies Act as he did on February 14th. So she's this afternoon in her testimony, she's on the stand right now currently, she's been walking us through those meetings that were happening both at the cabinet level, her private meetings with the prime minister and other cabinet ministers and also deputy ministers. And they're trying to figure out whether this is really the way that they want to go. One thing that comes up, we've heard about this before, some testimony about this before is the possibility that the city of Ottawa had negotiated a settlement with some of the protesters to start moving trucks uh, out of the residential uh, residential areas uh, onto Wellington Street. And this was, they thought, possibly the first step to a negotiated settlement. We just heard from Thomas talking about this, and she said she didn't think this was going to work. She didn't know who they were going to negotiate with precisely. She didn't know that they were representative of what she described as this disparate group of people who are here on the streets of Ottawa. And she also said she didn't know who she was going to put up in front, meaning she didn't know which federal government official was going to be go out and conduct the negotiations uh, on behalf of the federal government. Certainly it wasn't going to be the prime minister. It wasn't going to be any of his frontline cabinet ministers. She suggested the possibility it might be a guy named Rod Stewart, who's the deputy minister of public safety. Uh, but she thought The protesters wouldn't even know who he was, and that wasn't going to work. So she basically said that was a non-starter. And then Thomas was asked, the big question was, did you really think it was necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act? Was that the advice that you gave to the prime minister? And she said, quite simply, yes, it was.
0: Glenn, I wanted to ask you, in the minute that we have left this morning, officials from the Department of Finance testified, what did we learn from them?
8: A really interesting testimony from Michael Sabia, who is the Deputy Minister of Finance, essentially the top bureaucrat in the department. And he was talking about the economic effects, not just of the occupation of Ottawa, but more so the blockades at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor and also in Coots, Alberta. Real uh, focus on the effects on the automotive industry. And he was talking about how concerned the government was that it was going to interfere with negotiations with the U.S. about a subsidy they were planning to bring in that was initially only going to apply to buyers of uh, electric vehicles that were made entirely in the United States. Sabia said that would have been a disaster for Canada, so the the finance department was negotiating to make it a North American-wide subsidy, which they ultimately succeeded in doing. But back in January, he said that was really much in doubt, and the possibility that Canada supply lines across the Ambassador Bridge, which is so key to the automotive sector, that they could be severed so easily by protests, was really spooking the Americans. And he said that was the reason they needed to get this, the convoys shut down as quickly as they possibly could to limit the long-term uh, economic damage, Mike.
0: CTV News' Glenn McGregor at the inquiry looking into the use of the Emergencies Act. Thanks for this, Glenn. Appreciate it. Coming up, Ontario school strike, déjà vu. Well, what will be the fallout if Ontario education workers go on strike for the second time within a month? Our press gallery panel will dig into that when Power Play returns. We have materially improved the offer. We've, with, we've removed the bill. And now they have a role to play to stay at the table and not walk out on kids. So I think uh, I think a lot of us are rather disappointed that children will be the casualty again of the union who's on a path uh, to a strike in the pursuit of much higher pay, even though they've got a materially better deal purpo- before them of $300-plus plus million uh, just for their members. So I really hope that they'll accept uh, the proposal before them. Ontario education workers versus the provincial government. We saw round one of that battle just over a week ago, resulting in the Ford government repealing its controversial back-to-work legislation. But with workers poised to walk off the job again next week, what can we expect to get from round two of this battle? And what will the fallout be for Ontario parents if schools close again? Let's bring in the press gallery to weigh in parliamentary reporters for the Toronto Star. Then we've got Stephanie Levitz and the Globe and Mail's Ian Bailey, who also writes the Globe's daily politics briefing. And our special guest on this is Larissa Waller from GT and Company. She previously served as the head of communications for Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Nice to have you back. Larissa, we're going to start with you. Do you think that parents will react differently the second time around if another strike occurs? And and I want to know what the calculation here is for the Ford government, having been in the room with that premier.
9: Yeah, I mean, I think parents will react, I, I think, more positively towards the government. I think the government's done a better job of talking about what they're offering I also think the government has shown that they're willing to move, right? They've they've come up in and what they're offering. Um, they've they've you know they put some as the premier said, put some water in their wine. They really kind of walked back the section thirty-three piece. Um, it doesn't seem that the union is willing to make any concessions. It actually seems like they're moving the goalpost a little bit here. And I think parents just want their kids in their class. And you know, you asked me or I heard you say, what will it mean for Ontario parents? sure it's an inconvenience for the parents but really what i'm worried about is the impact on the kids and you know every every parent i've spoken to every doctor i've spoken to has really talked about the disruption the kids have faced over the last two and a half years and it's just continuing you know i'm a mom myself and it's really inconvenient for me but that's not the primary motivator for me to want my kids in class
0: Larissa, I wanted to continue here for a second with you. Do you think that this was a, a calculation on the Ford government's uh, part to say, you know what, we're not going to bring in back-to-work legislation here. We're going to let QP be the ones that say that they're going to come out with another strike. And we're going to sit back and say that we want to sit at the negotiating table. Because right now, I think a lot of people are looking at this very differently from the last time when we had the nonwithstanding clause on the table.
9: Yeah, you know, I thought about this, and I thought about it from, you know, I I used to do communications in the premier's office. If you're looking at it from if the government was just doing a communications play, what they would have done is let QP go on strike the first time and bring in notwithstanding clause three, four days later, after all the parents are really, really mad and you see the disruption. But the government from the get go said this is about keeping kids in class. So I think that they sincerely were trying to keep kids in class with the notwithstanding clause the second time i don't think they're going to use it again but i think again they're sincere about wanting to keep kids in class i think that sincerity is coming through more and i think the bigger communication challenge this time is on the union and the government knows that
0: and speaking of the union we do have a statement from the union here from qp saying that the parties will spend all weekend at the table and we urge the government to return uh with the earnest intention of reaching a fair deal for students families and workers steph i'll bring this to you for a second here though Is this a different game now compared to the last time that we were seeing this? Do you think that the unions still have public opinion on their sides?
10: I'm not sure that they do. And I'm not sure that other unions are backing this particular union necessarily either. And that's part of the tension here, right? I mean, when we talk about the drama that happened with the notwithstanding clause, Mm -hmm. Doug Ford had made a lot of effort to build relationships with unions heading into his majority win in the last provincial election. He had a lot of unions on side. All of a sudden, he goes and he looks like he's going to trample on workers' rights. And the unions are saying, hey, buddy, Hey, wait a second. Yeah. Like, we supported you here. And then what do you see today? You see Doug Ford having an event with six, seven or eight private sector unions sort of as a show of force saying, you know, this isn't, um, this isn't now me versus the unions. This is me versus QP. It's very different. And so for the political fallout for Ford, also there's a bit of a different calculus here because now he's held off the wrath of the bigger unions that he also really needs at the table for some of the economic promises he's made to the people of Ontario, not just the education ones.
0: Yeah. And Ian, he doesn't need them right away because no. he has. As his majority, he exactly. just won an election. But exactly. still, there's that calculation, isn't there?
8: Exactly. I mean, he's, they've won the election in June. They're good for four years. But the prospect of a strike and kids being out of class and all of the chaos that causes and his damaged relationship with unions that he has to navigate that is probably something that the Ford government doesn't want and is going to linger going for a few years going forward and build and pres- possibly present challenges to the, to the Conservative government in Ontario.
0: Yeah, Larissa. I wanted to bring you back in on that. So, how much of a calculation is that inside uh, Ford's office right now?
9: I think that, of course, they're thinking about the relationships with other unions, um, and they they have done great work with other unions. You know what they've done for skilled trades, what they've done um, for, um, you know, the labor the labor sector generally. Um, I've, I talked to some of the unions and some of the people I know in the unions, and they weren't impressed with what QP was asking for. You know, asking for over 11% raise, it's, there's no way the government can do it. Not only because it's too expensive for QP, but everybody forgets that what happens with QP right now sets the floor for the broader public sector union negotiations coming up. So it's not just about QP, it's about everybody. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. The private sector unions know that. And they know that if CUPE is asking for the sun and the moon, there's no way the government can do it. The government's put forward, I think, a reasonable offer at, you know, just over three and a half percent. That's more than what was legislated. Um, So I think the private sector unions would say to CUPE, you know, like, come on, guys, um, take the deal. And I actually think that CUPE members themselves are probably saying, you know, this doesn't look so bad right now. Why are we going to lose our pay going on strike?
0: Steph, I've got a bit, about a minute left to try and split it between the two of you. So is CUPE now on a ledge?
10: Probably. I mean, but everybody's on a ledge here, right, with kids hanging in the balance. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, as both sides keep you know, m- making this, oh, we be- best faith, best faith, someone's going to have to blink here. And Doug Ford has now blinked not once but perhaps twice. So now it's a question of do the unions blink too?
0: Ian, have we lost? sight of the fact that this is supposed to be about the kids, even though everybody keeps citing them in this? No,
8: the, I doubt that, uh, that the, you know, the, the place of children in this matter has being lost. I mean, uh, you know, the kids are the centre of this thing and the impact on children, especially after what they've been through during the pandemic. I'm sure they're, they're still in the centre of focus here as this goes forward. Hopefully we'll see gets resolved uh, over the weekend or not and goes into a chaotic situation next week.
0: Time is ticking, and parents want to know if they need childcare or not. Exactly. Uh, we will stay tuned. Stephanie Levitz, Ian Bailey, Larissa Waller, thank you all so much for being here, and thank you for watching. That's your Power Play day in politics. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We will be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night.